0: Section 28 of Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, Volume 2, by John Lloyd Steffens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. In the afternoon, rested and refreshed, we set out for a walk to the ruins. The path led through a noble piece of woods, in which there were many tracks and our indian guide lost the way mr c being unwell returned to the hacienda we took another road and emerging suddenly from the woods to my astonishment came at once upon a large open field strewed with mounds of ruins and vast buildings on terraces and pyramidal structures grand and in good preservation richly ornamented without a bush to obstruct the view, and in picturesque effect almost equal to the ruins of Thebes, for these, standing on the flat valley of the Nile, and extending on both sides of the river, nowhere burst in one view upon the sight. Such was the report I made to Mr. Catherwood on my return, who, lying in his hammock, unwell and out of spirits, told me I was romancing. But early the next morning we were on the ground, and his comment was that the reality exceeded my description. The place of which I am now speaking was beyond all doubt once a large, populous, and highly civilized city, and the reader can nowhere find one word of it on any page of history. Who built it? why it was located on that spot away from water or any of those natural advantages which have determined the sites of cities whose histories are known what led to its abandonment and destruction no man can tell the only name by which it is known is that of the hacienda on which it stands in the oldest deed belonging to the peon family which goes back a hundred and forty years The buildings are referred to in the boundaries of the estate as las casas de piedra this is the only ancient document or record in existence in which the place is mentioned at all and there are no traditions except the wild superstitions of indians in regard to particular buildings the ruins were all exhumed within the last year the trees had been cut down and burned and the whole field of ruins was in view enclosed by the woods and planted with corn we passed a most interesting and laborious day and at evening returned to the hacienda to mature our plans for a thorough exploration but unfortunately during the night mr catherwood i believe affected by the immensity of the work had a violent attack of fever which continued upon him in the morning with a prospect of serious illness it was monday and very early all the indians of the hacienda according to their obligation to the master presented themselves to receive directions from the major-domo for the day's work in remaining about the house i had an opportunity of learning somewhat of the hacienda discipline and the character of the indians the hacienda of Ushmal is ten leagues or thirty miles square but only a small portion is cultivated and the rest is a mere roaming ground for cattle the indians are of two classes vaqueros or tenders of cattle and horses who receive twelve dollars per year with five almudas of maize per week and labradores or laborers who are also called luneros from their obligation, in consideration of their drinking the water of the hacienda, to work for the master without pay on lunes or Monday. These last constitute the great body of the Indians, and beside their obligation to work on Monday, when they marry and have families and, of course, need more water, they are obligated to clear, sow, and gather twenty of maize for the master each mecate being twenty-four square yards when the bell of the church is struck five times every indian is obligated to go forthwith to the hacienda and for a real a day and a ration of three cents worth of maize do whatever work the master or his delegate the major-domo may direct THE AUTHORITY OF THE MASTER OR HIS DELEGATE OVER THESE IS ABSOLUTE. HE SETTLES ALL DISPUTES BETWEEN THE INDIANS THEMSELVES AND PUNISHES FOR OFFENSES, ACTING BOTH AS JUDGE AND EXECUTIONER. IF THE MAJOR DOMO PUNISH AN INDIAN UNREASONABLY, THE LATTER MAY COMPLAIN TO HIS MASTER, AND IF THE MASTER REFUSES TO GIVE HIM REDRESS OR HIMSELF PUNISHES AN INDIAN UNREASONABLY, the latter may apply for his discharge. There is no obligation upon him to remain on the hacienda unless he is in debt to the master, but practically this binds him hand and foot. The Indians are all improvident, anticipate their earnings, never have two days' provisions in store, and never keep any accounts. A dishonest master may always bring them in debt, and generally they are really so. If able to pay off the debt, the Indian is entitled to his immediate discharge, but if not, the master is obliged to give him a writing to the effect following, whatever senor wishes to receive the Indian named, dash, can take him, provided he pays me the debt he owes me, quote, If the master refuses him this paper, the Indian may complain to the justicia. When he has obtained it, he goes round to the different haciendas until he finds a proprietor who is willing to purchase the debt, with a mortgage upon him until it is paid. The account is settled, and the master gives the Indian a writing of this purport. The account of my former servant, being adjusted, Which is twenty dollars, and having paid me the said debt, I, his present master, give him this receipt. And with this, he enters into the service of a new master. There is but little chance of his ever paying off the smallest debt. He will never work merely to clear off the encumbrance, considers all he can get on his body clear gain and virtually from the time he receives his first dollar goes through life in bondage varied only by an occasional change of masters in general they are mild amiable and very docile bear no malice and when one of them is whipped and smarting under stripes with tears in his eyes he makes a bow to the major-domo and says buenos tardes senor good evening sir but they require to be dealt with sternly, and kept at a distance, are uncertain and completely the creatures of impulse, and one bad Indian or a bad mestizo may ruin a whole hacienda. They inherit all the indolence of their ancestors, are wedded to old usages, and unwilling to be taught anything new. Don Simon has attempted to introduce improvements in agriculture but in vain. They cannot work except in their own old way. Don Simon brought out the common churn from the United States and attempted to introduce the making of butter and cheese. But the Indians could not be taught the use of them. The churns were thrown aside, and hundreds of cows wander in the woods unmilked. The master is not obliged to maintain the Indian when sick, though as he derives a profit from his labor it is his interest to do so and on broad grounds as it is an object always to increase his labradores it is his interest to treat them in such a manner as to acquire among the indians a reputation as a good master in the course of the morning i visited many of the huts of the indians they were built in an oblong form Of round poles set upright in the ground and thatched and some appeared clean and comfortable the men were all away at work and all day there was a procession of women in white cotton dresses moving from the gate to the well and drawing water it was pleasant to find that marriage was considered proper and expedient conducing to good order and thrift certainly and probably to individual happiness don simon encouraged it he did not like to have any single men on the estate and made every young indian of the right age take unto himself a wife when as often happened the indian in a deprecating tone said no tengo mujer i have no woman don simon looked through the hacienda and found one for him on his last visit he made four matches and the day before our arrival the delmonical major-domo had been to the nearest village to escort the couples and pay the padre for marrying them the price being thirteen shillings each he was afraid to trust them with the money for fear they would spend it and not get married the old major-domo was energetic in carrying out the views of his master on this important subject and that day a delicate case was brought before him. A young Indian girl brought a complaint against a married woman for slander. She said that she was engaged to be married to a young man whom she loved and who loved her, and the married woman had injured her fair fame by reporting that she was already in an interesting situation. She had told the young man of it, said that all the women in the hacienda saw it and taunted him with marrying such a girl and now she said the young man would not have her the married woman was supported by a crowd of witnesses and it must be admitted that appearances were very much against the plaintiff but the old major domo, without going into the merits at all decided in her favour on broad grounds indignant at a marriage being prevented he turned to the married woman and asked what was it to her what right had she to meddle what if it was true it was none of her business perhaps the young man knew it and was party to it and still intended to marry the girl and they might have lived happily but for her busy tongue and without more ado he brought out a leather whip cut into long lashes and with great vigor began applying it to the back of the indiscreet communicator of unwelcome tidings. He wound up with an angry homily upon busybodies, and then upon women generally, who, he said, made all the difficulties on the hacienda, and but for them the men would be quiet enough. The matrons of the hacienda stood aghast at this unexpected turn of things, and when the case was dismissed, all crowded around the victim and went away with her giving such comfort as they could the young girl went away alone the hearts of her sex were steeled against her in savage as in civilized life every woe a tear may claim except an erring sister's shame in the afternoon mr catherwood's fever left him but in a very low state the hacienda was unhealthy at this season. The great troughs and tanks of water around the house were green, and with the regular afternoon rains induced fatal fevers. Mr. Catherwood's constitution was already severely shattered. Indeed, I became alarmed and considered it indispensable for him to leave the hacienda and, if possible, the country altogether to carry out my other plans we intended at all events to return we made a calculation that by setting out the next morning we could reach the spanish brig in time to embark for havana and in ten minutes consultation we determined to break up and go home immediately we communicated our purpose to the major-domo who ascended to the belfry of the church and called a coach to be ready at two o'clock the next morning. Chapter Twenty Five, Ruins of Ushmal, a lofty building, magnificent view from its doorway, peculiar sculptured ornaments, another building called by the Indians the House of the Dwarf, an Indian legend, the House of the Nuns, the House of Turtles, the House of Pigeons, the Guard House, absence of water the house of the governor, terraces, wooden lintels, details of the house of the governor, doorways, corridors, a beam of wood inscribed with hieroglyphics, sculptured stones, etc. In the meantime, I return for one more view of the ruins. Mr. Waldeck's work on these ruins had appeared before we left this country. It was brought out in Paris in a large folio edition, with illustrations fancifully and beautifully colored, and contains the result of a year's residence at Merida and eight days at Uxmal. At the time of his visit, the ruins were overgrown with trees, which within the last year had been cleared away, and the whole was laid bare and exposed to view. In attempting a description of these ruins, so vast a work rises up before me, that I am at a loss where to begin. Arrested on the very threshold of our labors, I am unable to give any general plan, but fortunately the whole field was level, clear of trees, and in full sight at once. The first view stamped it indelibly upon my mind, and mr catherwood's single day was well employed the first object that arrests the eye on emerging from the forest is the building represented on the right hand of the engraving opposite drawn off by mounds of ruins and piles of gigantic buildings the eye returns again and again fastens upon this lofty structure it was the first building i entered From its front doorway I counted sixteen elevations, with broken walls and mounds of stones and vast magnificent edifices, which at that distance seemed untouched by time and defying ruin. I stood in the doorway when the sun went down, throwing from the buildings a prodigious breadth of shadow, darkening the terraces on which they stood, and presenting a scene strange enough a work of enchantment. This building is 68 feet long. The elevation on which it stands is built up solid from the plain, entirely artificial. Its form is not pyramidal, but oblong and rounding, being 240 feet long at the base and 120 feet broad, and it is protected all around to the very top by a wall of square stones. Perhaps the highly ruined structures at Palenque, which we have called pyramidal, and which were so ruined that we could not make them out exactly, were originally of the same shape. On the east side of the structure is a broad range of stone steps between eight and nine inches high, and so steep that great care is necessary in ascending and descending of these we counted a hundred and one in their places. Nine were wanting at the top and perhaps twenty were covered with rubbish at the bottom. At the summit of the steps is a stone platform, four feet and a half wide, running along the rear of the building. There is no door in the center, but at each end a door opens into an apartment eighteen feet long and nine wide, and between the two is a third apartment, of the same width, and thirty-four feet long. The whole building is of stone. Inside the walls are of polished smoothness. Outside, up to the height of the door, the stones are plain and square. Above this line there is a rich cornice or molding, and from this to the top of the building, all the sides are covered with rich, and elaborate sculptured ornaments, forming a sort of arabesque. The style and character of these ornaments were entirely different from those of any we had ever seen before, either in that country or in any other. They bore no resemblance whatever to those of Copan or Palenque, and were quite as unique and peculiar. The designs were strange and incomprehensible very elaborate, sometimes grotesque, but often simple, tasteful, and beautiful. Among the intelligible subjects are squares and diamonds with busts of human beings, heads of leopards, and compositions of leaves and flowers, and the ornaments known everywhere as grecs. The ornaments which succeed each other are all different, The whole form an extraordinary mass of richness and complexity and the effect is both grand and curious and the construction of these ornaments is not less peculiar and striking than the general effect there were no tablets or single stones each representing separately and by itself an entire subject but every ornament or combination is made up of separate stones, on each of which part of the subject was carved, and which was then set in its place in the wall. Each stone by itself was an unmeaning fractional part, but placed by the side of others helped to make a whole, which without it would be incomplete. Perhaps it may with propriety be called a species of sculptured mosaic, From the front door of this extraordinary building a pavement of hard cement twenty-two feet long by fifteen broad leads to the roof of another building seated lower down on the artificial structure as shown in the engraving there is no staircase or other visible communication between the two but descending by a pile of rubbish along the side of the lower one and groping around the corner we entered a doorway in front four feet wide and found inside a chamber twelve feet high with corridors running the whole breadth of which the front one was seven feet three inches deep and the other three feet nine inches the inner walls were of smooth and polished square stones and there was no inner door or means of communication with any other place outside the doorway was loaded with ornaments, and the whole exterior was the same as that of the building described above. The steps leading from the doorway to the foot of the structure were entirely destroyed. The Indians regard these ruins with superstitious reverence. They will not go near them at night, and they have the old story that immense treasure is hidden among them. Each of the buildings has its name given to it by the Indians. This is called the Casa de Enano, or House of the Dwarf, and it is consecrated by a wild legend, which, as I sat in the doorway, I received from the lips of an old Indian as follows. There was an old woman who lived in a hut on the very spot now occupied by the structure on which this building is perched and opposite the Casa del Gobernador, which will be mentioned hereafter, and who went mourning that she had no children. In her distress, she one day took an egg, covered it with a cloth, and laid it away carefully in one corner of the hut. Every day she went to look at it, until one morning she found the egg hatched and a criatura, or creature, or baby, born. The old woman was delighted and called it her son provided it with a nurse took good care of it so that in one year it walked and talked like a man and then it stopped growing the old woman was more delighted than ever and said he would be a great lord or king one day she told him to go to the house of the gobernador and challenge him to a trial of strength the dwarf tried to beg off but the old woman insisted and he went the guard admitted him and he flung his challenge to the gobernador the latter smiled and told him to lift a stone of three arrobas or seventy-five pounds at which the little fellow cried and returned to his mother who sent him back to say that if the gobernador lifted it first he would afterward the gobernador lifted it, and the dwarf immediately did the same. The gobernador then tried him with other feats of strength, and the dwarf regularly did whatever was done by the gobernador. At length, indignant at being matched by a dwarf, the gobernador told him that unless he made a house in one night higher than any in the place, he would kill him the poor dwarf again returned crying to his mother who bade him not to be disheartened and the next morning he awoke and found himself in this lofty building the gobernador seeing it from the door of his palace was astonished and sent for the dwarf and told him to collect two bundles of cogoyo a wood of a very hard species with one of which he the gobernador would beat the dwarf over the head and afterward the dwarf should beat him with the other the dwarf again returned crying to his mother but the latter told him not to be afraid and put on the crown of his head a tortillita de trigo a small thin cake of wheat flour the trial was made in the presence of all the great men in the city the governador broke the whole of his bundle over the dwarf's head without hurting the little fellow in the least. He then tried to avoid the trial on his own head, but he had given his word in the presence of his officers and was obliged to submit. The second blow of the dwarf broke his skull in pieces, and all the spectators hailed the victor as their new gobernador. THE OLD WOMAN THEN DIED. BUT AT THE INDIAN VILLAGE OF MANI, SEVENTEEN LEAGUES DISTANT, THERE IS A DEEP WELL FROM WHICH OPENS A CAVE THAT LEADS UNDERGROUND AN IMMENSE DISTANCE TO MERIDA. IN THIS CAVE, ON THE BANK OF A STREAM, UNDER THE SHADE OF A LARGE TREE, SITS AN OLD WOMAN WITH A SERPENT BY HER SIDE, WHO SELLS WATER IN SMALL QUANTITIES, NOT FOR MONEY, but only for a criatura, or baby, to give the serpent to eat, and this old woman is the mother of the dwarf. Such is the fanciful legend connected with this edifice, but it hardly seemed more strange than the structure to which it referred. The other building indicated in the plate is called by a name which may originally have had some reference to the Vestals, WHO IN MEXICO WERE EMPLOYED TO KEEP BURNING THE SACRED FIRE. BUT I BELIEVE IN THE MOUTHS OF THE INDIANS OF UXMAL IT HAS NO REFERENCE WHATEVER TO HISTORY, TRADITION OR LEGEND, BUT IS DERIVED ENTIRELY FROM SPANISH ASSOCIATIONS. IT IS CALLED CASA DE LAS MONJAS OR HOUSE OF THE NUNS OR THE CONVENT. IT IS SITUATED ON AN ARTIFICIAL ELEVATION ABOUT 15 FEET HIGH its form is quadrangular and on one side according to my measurement is 95 paces in length it was not possible to pace all around it from the masses of fallen stones which encumber it in some places but it may be safely stated at 250 feet square like the house of the dwarf it is built entirely of cut stone and the whole exterior is filled with the same rich elaborate and incomprehensible sculptured ornaments the principal entrance is by a large doorway into a beautiful patio or courtyard grass grown but clear of trees and the whole of the inner facade is ornamented more richly and elaborately than the outside and in a more perfect state of preservation On one side, the combination was in the form of diamonds, simple, chaste, and tasteful. At the head of the courtyard, two gigantic serpents, with their heads broken and fallen, were winding from opposite directions along the whole façade. In front, and on a line with the door of the convent, is another building, on a lower foundation, of the same general character, called Casa de Tortugas. From sculptured turtles over the doorway this building had in several places huge cracks as if it had been shaken by an earthquake it stands nearly in the center of the ruins and the top commands a view all around of singular but wrecked magnificence beyond this a little to the right approached by passing over mounds of ruins was another building which at a great distance attracted our attention by its conspicuous ornaments. We reached it by ascending two high terraces. The main building was similar to the others, and along the top ran a high ornamental wall from which it was called Casa de Palomas, or House of Pigeons, and at a distance it looked more like a row of pigeon houses than anything else. In front was a broad avenue with a line of ruins on each side, leading beyond the wall of the convent to a great mound of ruins which probably had once been a building with which it was connected and beyond this is a lofty building in the rear to which this seemed but a vestibule or porter's lodge between the two was a large patio or courtyard with corridors on each side and the ground of the courtyard sounded hollow in one place the surface was broken and I descended into a large excavation, cemented, which had probably been intended as a granary. At the back of the courtyard, on a high, broken terrace, which it was difficult to climb, was another edifice, more ruined than the others, but which, from the style of its remains and its commanding position, overlooking every other building except the house of the dwarf, and apparently having been connected with the distant mass of ruins in front must have been one of the most important in the city perhaps the principal temple the indians called it the quartel or guardhouse it commanded a view of other ruins not contained in the enumeration of those seen from the house of the dwarf and the whole presented a scene of barbaric magnificence utterly confounding all previous notions in regard to the aboriginal inhabitants of this country and calling up emotions which had not yet been wakened to the same extent by anything we had yet seen there was one strange circumstance connected with these ruins no water had ever been discovered and there was not a single stream fountain or well known to the Indians, nearer than the hacienda, a mile and a half distant. The sources which supplied this element of life had disappeared. The cisterns were broken, or the streams dried up. This, as we afterward learned from Don Simon, was an object of great interest to him, and made him particularly anxious for a thorough exploration of the ruins he supposed that the face of the country had not changed and that somewhere under the ground must exist great wells cisterns or reservoirs which supplied the former inhabitants of the city with water the discovery of these wells or reservoirs would in that region be like finding a fountain in the desert or more poetically like finding money The supply of water would be boundless. Luneros without number might draw from it, and the old city be repeopled without any new expense for wells or tanks. While I was making the circuit of these ruins, Mr. Catherwood proceeded to the Casa del Gobernador, which title, according to the naming of the Indians, indicates the principal building of the old city, the residence of the governor or royal house it is the grandest in position the most stately in architecture and proportions and the most perfect in preservation of all the structures remaining at Ushmal. the plate opposite represents the ground plan with the three ranges of terraces on which it stands the first terrace is six hundred feet long and five feet high it is walled with cut stone and on the top is a platform twenty feet broad from which rises another terrace fifteen feet high at the corners this terrace is supported by cut stones having the faces rounded so as to give a better finish than with sharp angles the great platform above is flat and clear of trees but abounding in green stumps of the forest but lately cleared away and now planted or rather from its irregularity sown with corn which as yet rose barely a foot from the ground. At the southeast corner of this platform is a row of round pillars, 18 inches in diameter, and three or four feet high, extending about 100 feet along the platform. And these were the nearest approach to pillars or columns that we saw in all our exploration of the ruins of that country. In the middle of the terrace, along an avenue leading to a range of steps was a broken round pillar inclined and falling with trees growing around it it was part of our purpose to make an excavation in this platform from the impression that underneath would be found a vault forming part of the immense reservoirs for supplying the city with water in the center of the platform at a distance of two hundred and five feet From the border in front is a range of stone steps more than a hundred feet broad and thirty-five in number ascending to a third terrace fifteen feet above the last and thirty-five feet from the ground about equal to the height of the city hall which being elevated on a naked plain formed a most commanding position the erection of these terraces alone was an immense work On this third terrace, with its principal doorway facing the range of steps, stands the noble structure of the Casa del Gobernador. The façade measures 320 feet. Away from the region of dreadful rains and the rank growth of forest which smothers the ruins of Palenque, it stands with all its walls erect and almost as perfect as when deserted by its inhabitants. The whole building is of stone, plain up to the moulding that runs along the tops of the doorway, and above filled with the same rich, strange, and elaborate sculpture, among which is particularly conspicuous the ornament before referred to as la grec. There is no rudeness or barbarity in the design or proportions. On the contrary, the whole wears an air of architectural symmetry and grandeur, and as the stranger ascends the steps and casts a bewildered eye along its open and desolate doors, it is hard to believe that he sees before him the work of a race in whose epitaph, as written by historians, they are called ignorant of art and said to have perished in the rudeness of savage life if it stood at this day on its grand artificial terrace in hyde park or the garden of the tuileries it would form a new order i do not say equalling but not unworthy to stand side by side with the remains of egyptian grecian and Roman art. End of section 28